So I looked at CNG um, to where you, you know, set compressors, you know, pump the gas up to 6,000 pounds, put it or 3,600 pounds, depending on what type of tank you're using and put it in the truck and drive it someplace and then unload it into a pipeline is, you know, I looked at that as an opportunity, but the economics are really challenging on that. We looked at LNG where you liquefy and you needed to have a, a pretty sizable amount of gas for an extended period to be able to justify the capital expense. Rocks Exploration, our family-owned small business, this is Rocks Energy, a show about the oil and gas industry as we live it and breathe it each day. I'm Adam Oxen. Let's get on with the show. Brent Breon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. You bet. Thanks for inviting me on, Adam. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we connected at the uh, Empower uh, Bitcoin mining thing, right? A few months back. And yeah, um, that's correct. Yeah. I mean, I've enjoyed, you've been really helpful as we've been thinking through different things and excited today to kind of talk about both like oil and gas operations, but also like Bitcoin mining operations. So um, kind of thinking about that, like kicking off the conversation, what do you think like the public perception is of like the oil and gas industry right now? Like, let's start there and then we'll, and then we'll tag Bitcoin on there. But what do you, what do you think the average Joe thinks about oil and gas right now? I mean, a lot of it depends on what part of the country that you're in. Um, if you're an East Coaster or a West Coaster, you think that oil and gas and fossil fuels can be replaced. But um, most people on a day-to-day basis use fossil fuels or, or components that were derived from fossil fuels from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed. So um, it's, a, it's a necessary component for the type of life that we live in the United States. And there are millions of people in, you know, sub-Saharan South Africa and other areas or, or South America, yeah, South Africa that don't have access to um, fossil fuels and hydrocarbons and don't even maybe have access to electricity. And they all want to have the same lifestyle and level of living that we have here in the United States. And that's all derived because of fossil fuels. Um, and we're making we're making the move to renewable energy with solar and, and wind and, and others. But um, our success and our growth over the last hundred years or more in the United States has been really driven by the development of fossil fuels. Um, so it's um, it's something that while the public perception may and a lot of people are focusing on trying to move investments to renewables, um, especially natural gas is a commodity that's going to be here, for, in my opinion, for quite some time. Um, we have an abundance of it here in the United States. Uh, we have the ability in the world to be able to replace a lot of coal uh, that's used for power generation with the United States natural gas, uh, which is the cleanest natural gas that's developed anywhere in the United States. And we should be pushing that natural gas out to the world um, to replace um, coal and, and HEP in some locations using dung as a way to be able to heat their food or to be able to you know cook food and be able to heat their, their homes. So. Um, I, I think the public perception isn't always the greatest. It doesn't help when we have uh, NYMEX at eight dollars <laughs> per MCF right. and we have oil yeah. over a hundred dollars. Um, doesn't necessarily help us, um, but um, we are a backbone to the society that we live in today. Yeah, do you feel like that you almost have to? I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Bitcoin in a minute, but like you know, you hear about. Oh, I'm, I'm going to try and orange pill someone, right? On like understanding what Bitcoin is. Do you feel like there's almost like an, an orange pilling you have to do when you're having conversations with maybe um, 
maybe for the colleagues outside the industry or with family or friends where you have to like, Hey, no oil and gas is good. Like, let me explain. Like, do you yeah, have conversations like that? So we all take for granted that we get up in the morning and we walk in the bathroom, we turn on the light switch and that the lights are going to turn on. And we all take for granted that we're going to, you know, take a trip, you know, on you know Thanksgiving to go see friends and family. And we're going to hop on a plane or we're going to drive, you know, across two States and that we're going to be able to pull into a gas station. We'll be able to get gas. We're going to be able to hop on the plane. We're going to be able to, I mean, we take for granted all of that um, freedom that we have and the reliability of all the energy that we receive. And we don't always necessarily consider what it takes to be able to have, you know, to be able to have that in our society. Um, so I've heard my, one of my coworkers tells a story of if you, if you go back to like 1400, 1300 AD and, and Joseph is a farmer in you know in england and he wants to go to london how does he get there and and so i'll ask you i mean how would he typically get there and what you're saying 15th century yeah 1400 yeah. as yeah. well he's on on cart or horseback right? horseback exactly so go 100 years 1500 i mean pretty much the same answer right go to 1600 go to 1700 go to 1800 i mean you're walking you're on a horse and uh, maybe you're, you know, maybe behind a mule. Horse, behind. Was, horse would probably be rare, right? Horse it would be, I mean, that's an expensive be. animal to probably own and, would be. and maintain. Probably would be. Move yourself to the 19th and 20th century and list out all the different modes of transportation that allow individuals to be able to get from point to point. And the vast majority of those modes of transportation were established because of fossil fuels. Um, so in a very short period of time, we've become very very comfortable and we assume that all those modes are available to us to be able to move. And it is because of the recent discovery and use of fossil fuels. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great, I love that illustration. I'm going to borrow that. That's, that's a great example. I read a great book um, called um, How Innovation Works um, by Matt, um, can't remember his last name, but he talks about this, like the revolution of energy. And like, he goes back to like steam powered engines. Right. And like the, basically you had all this like university research, you had, um, uh, people writing about it and like professional thinkers, right. Talking about it all over Europe, but the people who figured it out were blacksmiths, like British blacksmiths, you know, just toying around with, different prototypes and working together. And then they'd see something at like a County fair and someone else would improve on it. And that, you know, eventually became right. The, the locomotive, um, and how that really originated just in with, with engineers in the field, working and tinkering and doing, as opposed to like the experts in universities, like writing papers. And then, you know, fast forward that to right Henry Ford and the yeah. combustion yeah. engine and necessity really, I mean, necessity will drive the innovation and, and your, your engineers or your farmers in the, in the, in the field, trying to figure out a faster way to be able to grow, um, you know, their corn or trying to figure out ways to be able to repair their, um, you know, their instruments to make them work better for them. So yeah, necessity drives a lot of that innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So let's, no, let's jump from the, the oil and gas side to like the Bitcoin space. Like, what do you think? I know we're going to talk about the synergies and overlap and, and, and what your businesses are doing in both, but like thinking about Bitcoin, like society wise, like, I mean, it's, it's in the news a lot more. It's on the top of, on the tip of people's tongues and top of mind, but like, what's, 
Is it conf- what's people's what's what do you think the average person thinks about Bitcoin? What? The average person still is not very educated on Bitcoin, at least in my experience. Um, everybody at this point has heard of it in some form or fashion. Um, and you have a number of folks that understand that it's a digital you know, digital commodity or a digital asset. Um, but there's still a, a lot of people, they get um, hung up on the, on the word mining and what exactly are you doing mining? I don't think that's the best uh, description of what our industry um, does with the computers that we deploy at our, you know, at our oil and gas sites with electric generation. Um, you know, I've had um, people tell us that we need an extraction permit before Adam which I thought was quite humorous um, because, we, you know, we get, a, we get a, a permit to drill a well and then we take the gas and we run it through an electric generator and then we, you know, run it into computers and data centers. But when they hear the word mining, uh, they said, you know, you, you may need an extraction permit to be able to, to have those computers. On. And, I, and I laugh, I'm like, we're not trucking out, you know, truckloads of Bitcoin here off of the property, guys. I mean, this is everything's in a computer and moving to the cloud. Um, right. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's quite humorous. So there's there's still quite a people that don't quite understand. Um, and then there's also people that, especially in the mining space, that don't understand exactly the amount of capital um, that is necessary to be deployed to the computers, who think that um, there's uh, we're making obscene amounts of money um, mining Bitcoin. And there's obviously the balancing act of you have to have the energy, you have to have the uh, computers and the data centers. And then the um, operations as well. So it's not quite like a printing press where you're just printing money. It does take quite a bit of investment to get there. And the general public, I don't hasn't, I don't believe, has an appreciation for what um, type of capital is deployed into these mining operations. I think you can probably say that is true of of drilling and operating an oil oh, and gas for, well. Absolutely, right? Like and nobody understands that's... that a horizontal well costs ten million dollars in, in most places. Um, and then do eight of them off of one pad and then build some pipelines and some facilities and you've got a hundred million dollars off of one pad. Um, no, and the general public doesn't understand the magnitude of cost for those operations either. Right. And then just the planning that goes in to bring those things online, you know, getting up to the drilling and, and build out and all of that. So, yeah, no. So, so coming back, like, We've kind of, we kind of jumped into this, you know, I kind of asked you what, what do you think about perception, but let's go back. Let's give everyone kind of a background uh, on you, Brent, like how you came into where you're at now with Magellan and Pin Oak. Like, how'd you get started in oil and gas? Did you grow up in it? Like, give us like the, 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 the origin story of Brent Breon. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a mechanical engineer by education. Um, I got an MBA after I uh, got my uh, mechanical engineering degree just to have a little more business background. Um, but I've always been interested in the mechanical side. I tinkered with mini bikes, go-karts, cars, uh, all kinds of things, anything mechanical when I was a kid. Um, so that kind of drove me towards, uh, um, and, I, and I really thought when I graduated college that I would be going to Detroit and I'd be working for one of the big three or in the automotive side. And um, as, I, as I was um, leaving high school, I got an opportunity to work for a local distribution company. Um, at the time, it was East Ohio Gas, but it was a pipeline company that served uh, 1.2 million customers in uh, Northeast Ohio. And uh, that was in the pipeline space. And from there, I continued to have increasing opportunities. Um, and when I was getting ready to graduate my engineering degree, I was offered an opportunity to join um, the um, uh, East Ohio Gas, the local distribution company. So that's how I ended up in the pipeline space. Um, I was in pipelines before the shale industry, 
Uh, I was in pipeline space before it was cool to be in the pipeline space. And that was probably three to four years before Enron. And then it was really not cool to be in the energy space when the whole Enron debacle occurred. Everybody was running towards Google and running towards, you know, Microsoft and all the other digital. And um, I was still on the pipeline side. But um, I was working in compression. I was working in transmission pipelines, um, underground natural gas storage. Uh, we were doing some really sophisticated hydraulic modeling where we could model our entire um, distribution system to where we could do peak day modeling and look at what um, uh, um, pressures would look like on our pipeline system when we had a minus 20 degree day. And then we could make improvements on our pipeline system based on the computer models. So when we were when, when we were using those models at the pipeline system, it was really you know frontier technology on kind of an older industry um, that really gave us a lot of visibility into how we could improve the system. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of it. But I got the um, private equity midstream bug when the Marcellus Shale and, and the uh, Utica Shale took off in Ohio and West Virginia and in Pennsylvania. And I left uh, the safety of the uh, public utility to join a private equity-backed uh, midstream team, where for about eight years, we chased um, business development opportunities to gather gas and process gas for the Chesapeake's, the Ascent Resources, the Gulf Ports, the PDC Energies, you know, the who's who, um, Anadarko's, the, the who's who that were drilling in the Utica Shale in Ohio and in the Marcellus Shale in West Virginia. And I was a VP of business development working on gas gathering and processing contracts during that entire time period. So I had a lot of knowledge of who was drilling where, uh, because before they would drill wells in test locations, they wanted to contact the pipeline companies to figure out if they could do anything with their gas. And then after the wells were drilled, I had a pretty good sense for what the well results looked like, um, because we were one of the first ones to know because we were designing facilities. Um, so I got a very intimate knowledge in the Utica and the Marcella shale development from about 2009 through, you know, 2019. Um, and then in 19, I decided to make the, the move over to the EMP space and joined a uh, local group here in Akron, Ohio. Uh, that was not private equity backed. Uh, There's just three of us that own um, uh, Pin Oak Energy Partners. And um, we, um, it was a, it's a smaller EMP group that started in 2015 and have been acquiring assets from those big majors. We've acquired production wells from um, Shell, from Chevron, uh, from Seneca Resources, um, from a few private equity groups like Protege and others that were in the area that decided to leave the Utica. Uh, Halcon Resources decided to uh, to leave the Utica and we picked up their entire position in Appalachia. Um, and so slowly over time, we've accumulated 3,300 wells. A lot of those wells are conventional wells that were drilled in the Clinton uh, formation in Ohio. Um, and about 100 of those wells are Utica, Marcellus wells that are in um, mostly Utica wells in Ohio and in Pennsylvania. And um, so I'm chief commercial officer and responsible for <laughs> trying to market all that gas, try to get the highest price that we can. Uh, we do have about 10% of our energy production is oil. Um, and so we do obviously market that oil as well. We have some NGL production that comes from our wet gas that gets processed at the Marathon Processing Facilities or at the Blue Racer Processing Facilities. Um, and that's kind of what led me to ultimately to, to Bitcoin. Uh, we had um, at the time about six uh, well pads that were drilled by other operators that we inherited as part of acquisitions. So. You're trying to buy um, Halcon's position. They said, well, if you're taking all these wells, you got to take these three wells that we drilled and never connected to pipe. And, oh, good luck. You either have to find a pipe to connect them to or you got to plug them. And that's not our problem. That's your problem if you want the assets. 
So when I joined um, Pin Oak in 2019, that was one of the challenges that I had was trying to figure out how to get these wells into production. And we found um, we found some midstream systems we were able to purchase and, and able to tie um, the production into. But ultimately, the solution became maybe we can do some off-stream or you know off-pipeline um, um, power generation and do Bitcoin mining on pad and do these at stranded locations that are off-grid. So it's kind of roundabout way how I got to Bitcoin mining. No, oh, yeah, that's awesome. I, I love hearing the story. So let's, I want to ask you right there, because a lot of people hear this, like, oh, you can mine Bitcoin using natural gas, but you just threw a lot of things out there just kind of nonchalantly and telling the story like, oh yeah, we picked up these wells and they were thrown into the package because they're plugging liability. And uh, we were managed to like get some midstream, like, I don't think like the average person listening to that would be like, like, oh yeah, you just go grab those things. But there's a lot of capital involved in that. There's a lot of deal making, like break that down a little bit more. If you could, like for someone, if someone's like, I'm a Bitcoin miner and I want to connect with oil and gas operators so I can mine on their assets, like maybe fill in some of the, like the challenges there, maybe like the capital side, the deal making side, the anything else you want to layer on there to like the complexity of making a deal like that work? Sure. So we are first and foremost at Pinnock Energy Partners, we are an oil and gas company. So, so we're not out necessarily, you know, just trying to find stranded wells or stranded production. Um, we, we have 3,300 wells that are producing into multiple pipeline systems. And so that's what we do is, is we produce gas and, and we produce oil and, and then we market on those uh, those products and we produce as safely as we can. Um, so number one, you have to be an oil and gas company to to really begin with. Um, it, it, you you can't just assume that you're going to go be able to you know buy a well or two and then you know because you you have to stand up yourself. You have to have a bond. You have to be bonded in the state. You have to have an operator. Um, so you, you have to be recognized by the by the states that you operate in as an oil and gas operator. Have the proper insurance levels, as you can imagine, those are fairly high. Um, and you have to be established um, as an operator. And then to make things even more complicated, if you own pipelines that are gathering your gas and other gas, then you could be subject to you know, jurisdictional gathering pipeline requirements. So now you have operator qualification, you have classification studies, you have all the codes that are required for operating those pipelines in a safe manner. Um, so our industry is heavily regulated, <laughs> and both on the pipeline side and on the EMP side, and so you, you you have to have the staff, you have to have the operators, you have to have everything in place insurance-wise and, and to be able to be an operator, number one. Okay, so then, then number two, you have to be in a unique situation where you have production assets um, that hopefully you took on at a fairly low price uh, because they were somebody else's liability, uh, but they have to be free and clear of any midstream commitments. Um, as you can, you know, as, as I was talking about the Utica development, the Marcellus Shale development, there were billions and billions and billions of dollars that were put into the ground and into facilities by the, you know, the, the Mark West, you know, the Blue Racers, the Williams, um, all the large, you know, pipeline companies that were laying miles and miles and miles of 16 inch pipe and installing compressor stations and building huge processing plants to be able to process the high B2 gas and then the ethane pipelines, the propane pipelines everything associated with the NGLs, and then the residue pipelines that got built to take this natural gas to Michigan, to the East Coast, back to LNG exports in the Gulf Coast, billions and billions of dollars. Well, usually all that infrastructure requires some type of commitment by the EMP company. 
Um, and so you have a lot of the larger players, um, the EQTs, the Cabots, the Ranger Resources, the others, they made uh, the Anteros, they made gigantic uh, pipeline commitments for interstate pipeline takeaway. And they would typically commit either through an acreage dedication or through a volume commitment, their production to go to pipelines and to go to um, the processing plants, et cetera. And usually in those gathering agreements and processing agreements, um, there's a limitation that the producer can only use that gas on their pad for production operations uh, to run heaters um, for, you know, heater treaters or for production equipment, maybe to run a little bit of power generation for your controls and for your measurement, uh, maybe to run, you know, a vapor recovery unit off of your tanks to, to capture any events that are, you know, any, um, um, any gas that's leaving your uh, vents on your tanks and to bring those back into your pipelines, obviously for greenhouse gas emissions, but also because it's valuable and you don't want to lose it. Um, and that's one thing that always upsets me about the, the general public as well as they, they think that we like to leak gas into the atmosphere. I mean, we're producing the gas to make money. So we don't intentionally leak gas into the atmosphere. And there are ways and regulations that allow us to do so if we need to, but we don't intentionally try to pollute uh, we try to, obviously that's our product. So we're trying to get it to market. But anyways, as I was saying, um, the, uh, usually these wells have some, or typically in a situation, these wells have some type of midstream commitment. Uh, so to find wells and, and to find operators that are in unique situations where they have access to oil and gas that they can sell at a discounted price because it's stranded and to find pads that are not dedicated either through an acreage dedication or through some other type of commitment is kind of like trying to find a needle in a haystack. It's not necessarily just, you know, going up to uh, EQT and saying, hey, I, you got a couple wells that I can just take on and, and they just hand them over to you and you, you, you're just Joe Blow just out operating the wells with, with no, you know, no, no insurance and, and not bonded in the state and not necessarily set up to be able to operate. And then when a midstream company does find out that you're making money off of this gas to mine Bitcoin instead of going to the pipeline they're supposed to go to, you're probably going to get contacted by the midstream company wanting to, you know, to find out how they can get that gas. So it is, it's a niche where there are locations where people did drill step out wells and they've either been released from dedications or they're never committed. And they were probably never committed because they weren't economic to lay a pipeline out there. Uh, and then those are the best locations to be able to try to find. And that you, you do have that, whether it's in the Permian, or whether it's in the Powder River, or whether it's in you know the DJ, or in the Utica Marcellus, there are places where folks had drilled and they are stranded. They're not connected to pipe and there's some opportunity there. Hey, it's Adam here. I wanted to tell you more about Rocks Exploration. At Rocks, we drill, complete, and operate oil and gas wells right here in Oklahoma. What does that mean? That means we make money through the drill bit by drilling for and producing oil and gas but we also make money for our working interest partners. What's a working interest partner? That's an individual or small business that invests in an oil and gas well. It's not unlike a real estate investment. You see, drilling a well is extremely costly from geology to land to legal to drilling and completion and production. It takes a lot of time, resources, and people. Rocks takes care of all of that and our working interest partners align with us to take advantage of our expertise and experience. Each drilling project brings together tax write-offs and potentially high ROIs. So if you're interested in learning more about Rocks Exploration and our drilling projects, head to rocks.energy. That's www.rox.energy to find out more. Yeah. So when did you when did you first see the synergy between 
oil and gas production. And, and I guess it was with those, those six wells you mentioned that you guys acquired, right? Yeah, we were, like, what, we, we were able how, to get, How did that develop? Sure, sure, sure. So I looked at CNG um, to where you, you know, set compressors, you know, pump the gas up to 6,000 pounds, put it or 3,600 pounds, depending on what type of tank you're using and put it in the truck and drive it someplace and then unload it into a pipeline is, you know, I looked at that as an opportunity, but the economics are really challenging on that. We looked at LNG where you liquefy and you needed to have a, a pretty sizable amount of gas for an extended period to be able to justify the capital expense for LNG. Um, you know, we looked at um, some gas to liquids opportunities where you're using a catalyst and you're converting the methane um, in the gas stream to um, to kind of like converting it basically to diesel fuel or to other types of fuels. Um, again, somewhat expensive. You need to make sure that you have a good steady amount of gas to be able to feed that. And so that lends itself to larger, you know, larger wells. Um, so nothing was that, that we looked at was really scalable uh, where you could take 15 MCF a day and put it in a, you know, into a 60 or 70 kW generator. Or at the same time, you could take, uh, you know, a thousand MCF a day and have four megawatts of power at a well pad. Usually on a CNG, LNG, or some type of gas to liquids project, you needed to have three to four million, three to four thousand MCF a day to be able to really justify and and be able to hold that production back, so that you're really doing about two thousand steady for about you know five to seven years. And most of these wells, if they had that much production, you would have laid a pipeline to them. <laughs> so it's kind of a so what what I, what I thought was very unique about um, the Bitcoin opportunity is that you could scale your investment for the size of the well. And you obviously have some, you're gonna have some modem and communication costs, whether it's a huge location or a small location. Um, you're gonna have your production equipment regardless, but even the production equipment can be scaled. Um, but I, the, what I really found unique and, and novel about the Bitcoin aspect was that it was scalable and could work on smaller or larger volumes. Um, and then also it, it eliminated a ton of the issues around pipelines. And, and it's cliche, but you hear other people say it, I mean, it's a digital pipeline. It, it allows you to take something that's in the ground um, that you can't do anything with, and you can then turn it into an asset that can be held. I mean, Michael Saylor loves to call it the perfect battery, um, which I think it is. And you can take this natural gas, you can turn it into electricity, you can mine Bitcoin, and you can have a digital asset that you can hold for 100 years. It doesn't deplete like electricity will in a battery over a three-year period. Um, and you can move it in 10 minutes. I mean, if I try to take, you know, production from a well for, you know, for 30 days and then try to move it to, you know, to London tomorrow, I'm going to need to liquefy it. I'm going to need to truck it. I'm going to put it on a ship. I'm going to send it over. But I can send the Bitcoin once it's been converted um, from natural gas. I can send it in the next 10 minutes if I want to. It's interesting, that dynamic, because so much of our, um, like, the things we use daily have become digital, right? Like money has kind of been one of the last things to digitize in this way. So I think that's still one of the things that's hard for people to grasp and understand. Like for whatever reason, like when we took movies from VHS to DVDs to a downloadable file, that still made sense to them. It's still, but the idea that you can take energy and, or, hydrocarbons or natural gas and turn that into electricity that you then turn into a Bitcoin that's that Bitcoin is on the blockchain, right? You can move it to what, whatever wallet, wherever location, that idea that you can take something and move it from the physical into the digital 
in this scenario still hasn't quite that, that idea hasn't permeated across all of our society yet. And so I think that's one of the biggest things that's hard to explain about it, but I, I totally agree. Like that idea that you can store, you can take this work. I mean, think about that. Think of, think about like, you can take all this, you can turn the gas into a Bitcoin, right? In the same way that you think about a digital file, like from a movie or an album, there's hours of work, right? There's hundreds, if not thousands of people hired to make a, a motion picture, right? And they work and they provide services and use equipment and do all of this stuff, hundreds of millions of dollars to make one movie, right? That then becomes this digital object. What you're talking about is the same thing. When you're mining Bitcoin, you're expending, you know, someone, whether it's an operator you acquired it from or yourself has to spend the money to go out and drill the well to set casing and production tubing and, and bring these assets online and then get the mining computers, all of that. Like there's all this physical work that has to go into creating this digital hard money, which is a Bitcoin. Once that idea catches on, I think that's where we things really go parabolic with Bitcoin. But what were the initial challenges to launching that first Bitcoin mine? Like two parts, the practical side and then like the mental hurdles that maybe you had to get yourself over or your partners or investors. <laughs> so what the mental side, the conceptual side, and then the practical. So as an EMP operator in the basin, our number one goal with these wells that were some of them eight years old at the time, um, it had never been in production, was to demonstrate to the Department of Environmental Protection or to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources that the wells were in production. So we started out with, all right, we've got a couple wells that we can't lay pipeline to. Uh, we're seven miles away from any takeaway source. The, our best option is to try to sell some gas to a grain dryer that a farmer has, and we're going to sell some gas maybe for a couple weeks in October when they're drying their grain. And then otherwise, we're not going to be able to do anything with the well. Or we're looking at um, you know half a million to a million dollars in plugging and reclamation costs, because you consider a five-acre pad of gravel um, is supposed to be completely returned to tillable land. Um, so that's a lot of cost as opposed to a conventional well where it's typically a small location, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to plug. These horizontal wells can be very expensive to plug, not because necessarily the subsurface work, but everything that needs to be done on the surface to return it back to um, how it was originally um, uh, before before the pad was created. Um, so we started out very simply. I, we we signed a gas purchase agreement. Uh, with a, a gentleman that was a, a local person who had started a company called Stranded Energy Solutions. And he was interested in buying 15 MCF of gas at two well pads. And these wells could do 1,000 MCF a day of gas a day. And we're barely bleeding out 15 MCF a day. Um, but we were able to sell that gas at what we thought was a reasonable price, enough of a, a price for us to justify putting production equipment in at these locations um, and then be able to manage uh, the locations. Um, and once uh, a lot of skepticism um, on with the rest of my team <laughs> on, is this guy really going to install this generator and buy 15 MCF a day of gas and make this funny money? And is this really going to, and it was joking, like you would hear the, 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 the cart, you know, the Mario Kart dings of the coin or, or whatever in the background. And I'd get a, the operations guys would be dinging that on our, you know, weekly update call as you're talking about the, the Bitcoin mining equipment coming in. But 
sure enough, set the production equipment, tied it in, worked out a few issues with the, um, with, it was an upstream, not that upstream data has any issues. It was an upstream data unit that they were just trying to fine tune the high B2 gas with the engine that was part of the hash hut, um, worked those out in the first month. And within the first month, they, they were, you know, 95% runtime on the unit, um, tiny, small unit, hardly any noise. Um, and so, really kind of got a sink and like, all right, the, 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 uh, we, we submitted our production information for that month to the state. And then we had a follow-up meeting with the state, I think a month or two later. And they said, great. Now we removed those two wells from the plugging order list because you've been able to demonstrate that they're into production now. And so we looked around like, all right, we just dodged about a half a million dollar bullet. So um, this, is, this is at least solving our initial issue of do, plugging these wells. Um, and then we had another um, group that approached us about um, wanting to do some mining as well, very similar to what Strandard Energy Solutions had done and um, carbon capture, Kyle Texter wanted to look at a location uh, and work with us on a little bigger location, a 350 KW location. And we had a location in Ohio where we couldn't meet the gas quality requirements of the local distribution company. We tried to put a mechanical refrigeration unit in to knock out the propane and butane um, we had a JT skid in there before, but the pressures kept dropping low enough that we didn't have enough pressure really to be able to process the gas. And so we were shut in at the location and had been for about nine months. And um, so, well, there's a location where we can put in a, a generator and we could mine Bitcoin at the location. Let's solve that problem. Again, another location that's eventually going to be on a plugging order from the ODNR. Let's get that into production. But this time, let's... Uh, Take a little, I had to drag my group along a little bit. Let's, let's take a little further step. Let's buy the generator, let's contribute the gas, and let's partner and take our compensation in Bitcoin instead of just selling the gas. And uh, so then we, that, we got a little deeper down the rabbit hole of trying to understand. And at that point is when, the, as you start really looking at what Bitcoin does for you from an energy perspective and start moving to an understanding of what Bitcoin is bigger picture. I mean, I initially, and, my, and I think my team just initially looked at Bitcoin as someplace we can just sell natural gas to somebody to be able to solve a problem. And then when we started realizing that, that all of the miners are trying to find the cheapest energy possible, and holy shit, we have the cheapest energy possible right here that we're not doing anything with. We should be, instead of selling it, we should be looking at trying to leverage what we already own and getting up to speed on understanding the mining side and understanding what makes that profitable and how that whole ecosystem works. And so, yeah, we made that first step of just selling gas as a solution to needing to plug a well, to a next step of partnering together in a solution to not being able to meet gas quality requirements, to then looking across our swath of locations and then saying, we should go out and try to find, because we've been in Appalachia for all of our careers and we know a lot of wells that were drilled that were never tied into pipelines. We should go out and try to take those wells on um, under the disguise that, hey, you know, we'll take care of plugging these. We have some ways to be able to work with these wells. And in a couple of locations, they have plugging orders with the state of Pennsylvania or Ohio already. And uh, when we when, when we were trying to suspend the plugging order, the state said, okay, so you're going to do the same thing that you did here and be able to get the well back into production by bringing out a natural gas generator and mine Bitcoin. Okay, we'll let you guys have the time you need to be able to get the equipment installed and get the well into production because we've gotten a reputation at that point of having a solution for plugging the, the wells. So much so that we would get operators who were contacting us saying, hey, we hear you like to take on these uh, challenging wells because you have a way to do something with them. 
Um, so it became, it, it morphed itself from just trying to find a way to avoid a large cost of plugging a well to becoming a business opportunity. That's awesome. That's amazing. So, so once you guys got into that, once you convinced the team, once you guys understood it and you start bringing on your own, like, what did you, how did you, did you form, like, did Pin Oak start operating these? You had the JV in one scenario, you had someone purchasing from you, but then you guys actually started operating your own Bitcoin mines. So what did that look like? And what was harder? Was it, was it harder going from like zero to one or one to two or multiple? Like talk about those elements. That's a good question. I think, you know, um, our team at Pin Oak, uh, when we, when we set up the joint ventures and we ended up, we, we did two joint ventures before we started our own mining. Um, we jumped, you know, all in to, to assist with the deployment um, of the assets. So I was there the day that we set the generators. I was there the day that we set the data centers. I was there plugging in the miners when the miners came. I, I wanted to fully understand what the process entailed, um, fully understand what the electrical setups were as an as a tinker on everything. And as a um, as a mechanical engineer, I just it, I wanted to understand the process. I wanted to understand what the costs were. I wanted to understand, you know, what the what the issues could be in the deployment so that when we were ultimately looking to do this ourselves, that we had credibility, that we could sit down with investors that we were talking with and explain the nuances of a deployment and uh, the nuances of a facility use agreement or a surface use agreement that gave you the right to have the equipment on pad. Because um, just because you have an oil and gas well doesn't necessarily mean that you have the right to have a generator and that you have the right to have a data center on that same pad. So you have to make sure that the landowner who you're there through a lease agreement and through a surface use agreement gives you those rights. Um, and so having having that understanding, having an understanding of what the equipment looked like, how it got connected, um, understanding zoning requirements, understanding um, you know, if you need a building permit or not, if you need a condition, conditional use permit for your generator, just all those nuances. Um, we wanted to be involved in that entire process to make sure that we understood, number one, that we were doing things within the rules, and number two, that if we were going to move forward doing this ourselves, that we knew how to do it. Once we kind of got that knowledge, then um, we felt that it was necessary for us to set up a separate affiliate and to set up a company. And so we set up Magellan Scientific as a separate affiliate. Um, Pin Oak Energy Partners sells our uh, gas under a long-term contract to Magellan Scientific. And then Magellan Scientific is our mining company. Um, and many of the um, services that Magellan Scientific either provides or performs are under contract being provided by Pinoak Energy Partners, our affiliate. So while I say we set up a separate entity and an affiliate, a lot of this work that's being done under Magellan Scientific is still from the team at Pinoak Energy Partners. And we felt that was probably the best and, and most important approach um, from handling the royalty issues with landowners and having an arm's length transaction um, between the two parties. Awesome. Very cool. This is great. This has been great, Brent. I, I think we could we could keep nerding out on this and hearing more of your story and then get into more like details and maybe we'll, maybe we'll do it again. Maybe we can do one of these again and we can get into like some of the nuts and bolts of like, well, how do you, how, how do you plug in these miners and then how do you connect them up to a pool and all that? Like we could do that, but I think we're getting kind of at the, like we, where we like to be on the, the length of these episodes. So let's do, this is new, like 
want to start doing this, a quick fire round of quick questions. Okay. <laughs> Just to get to know Brent a little bit better. So number one, favorite book and why? All right. So I'm not a huge reader. So I'll be the first to admit that what I call a book is actually car magazines. And I still like the paper magazines. Um, everything's online now and you can watch anything that you want online, but nothing beats flipping through the pages. I, I mean, I, I, I go back and I go down at least, I think I got rid of most of them in probably three or four moves, but I used to get Auto Week and I used to read Auto Week from cover to cover every week that it came. I knew every detail about every car that was being manufactured. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a magazine geek than I am necessarily books. And they're harder, harder to get these days, but I, I still like the hard paper magazines. Like a true mechanical engineer <laughs> wanting those, those auto <laughs> magazines. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, so I had a, I, early on in my, in my career, I was told that you can make a good living, but you can't make a fortune charging by the hour and that you need to own assets in order to be able to really elevate your wealth. And so whether it's oil and gas assets or whether it's pipelines or whether it's digital assets, is that wealth and true wealth is really created through the ownership and leverage of the assets that you have as opposed to just charging by the hour. And when and that that advice keeps coming back, like you won't hear anything. I won't think about it for like 10 years and then Bitcoin will happen. And I'll be like, well, shit, it's just another asset. Yeah, you you need go. to own the asset as opposed to just charging by the hour. So that's why I, that's why we don't host, um, because we want to make the asset and we want to hold the asset. You can borrow against the asset. There's a lot of things that you can do with the asset that you can't do if you're just selling your gas or if you're just hosting. Spot on. Love that. Great advice. Okay. Favorite food or drink? Okay. Well, I have my Angel's Envy um, vest on today. So my favorite drink by far is bourbon, just about any type of bourbon. And I hate uh, scotch whiskey. So do not give me any of that PD stuff. Um, so yes, bourbon is by far my favorite drink. Um, and then my favorite food, and just nothing beats a good steak. Nothing beats a good ribeye or a good strip steak, plenty of marbling, not good for me at all, but really damn tasty. <laughs> Love it. I'm totally with you. Those are great answers. Great answers. Speaking of though, have you seen any of these guys that are all like carnivore diets? Or like you should eat no. meat and fruit. No, that's uh, it. it like don't sounds eat vegetables. Great. It sounds good. Yeah. I don't I don't think my family would support it at all. <laughs> but that would be good. Yeah. I, I mean I'll have a vegetable here every once in a while, but yeah, I, I do. I do enjoy the proteins more. Got to have a little roughage in there to go with <laughs> yes. the protein. Yes. That's awesome. Well, Brent, this has been great. So where do people go to mo learn more about you or Magellan or Pin Oak? Where do you, yes. you want to send them? So yeah, LinkedIn, has, we have a Magellan site on LinkedIn. We do try to put some posts out there as to uh, things that we're working on or, you know, announcements on um, projects that we're working on or, you know, recent um, agreements that we've entered into. For instance, we just did a a joint operating agreement with Annex um, Power to install a letdown generator to uh, mine Bitcoin off of a letdown generator, which is completely zero emission electricity, renewable electricity, um, and a unique application. So that's on LinkedIn. I'm also on our Magellan website. Um, it's pretty generic right now, but we are working on some updates on the Magellan website as well to give some additional information on there. And then obviously you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to help answer questions. A lot of people gave a lot of advice and taught me a ton. 
So I am more than happy to share everything that I know with anybody else who wants to learn because I got to pay that uh, forward based on everything that everybody else has helped me with here in the last year and a half. I think they, it feels like it's been seven years. They say a year in Bitcoin is like dog years. It's like seven years and it does feel like it's been seven years in the last year and a half, but um, yeah. That's great. Thanks, Brent. I love it. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please do us a big favor and leave a review in whatever podcast app you listen to or share with someone you think might enjoy this content. Thanks a lot for listening to Rock Synergy.